Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with me, Nicholas Vesey. No need to look up, just stay with that sound. Do you notice how the sound connects you to the intelligence of your body, that vibrational intelligence? How sound feeds our body how it moves us out of our head. So as we all arrive here this morning, it's interesting just to notice how we live so much in our heads. And we've come into this beautiful space, a soundscape. So I invite us all just to enter into this time together aware of the balance or lack of balance between your head, your mind, your intellect your body and your heart can we each just bring all those centers of knowing to our awareness that we can show up here as fully as we possibly can to hear to listen to the still small quiet voice inside us the voice of wisdom the voice of life and love just feeling gravity making you sit where you are that force of gravity on you feeling the aliveness of your heart. And the awareness, a kind of incisive alertness in our minds. And just knowing that our presence matters here this morning. And those of you watching online, Our presence, our individual presence matters. Our intention, our attention in being here. That by bringing ourselves fully like this, we're co-creating this time. We're creating something generative. It's cool to think that this particular group, this particular configuration of people here in the room and watching online, has never existed before. And will never exist again. It's completely unique to right now at this point in time. And bursting with possibility. So consider for a second the people in front of you, next to you, behind you, people you carry in your heart, those in your circle of awareness, let's just bring into this moment this town of Aspen and the Roaring Fork Valley, the state of Colorado, all of America, all of the world, with all the troubled places. May we hold it all in our hearts today as we engage with everything we're going to be engaging on.
May our minds come alive today to the invisible geography that invites us to new frontiers, to break the dead shell of yesterdays, to risk being disturbed and changed. May we have the courage today to live the life that we would love. I said last week, the, the singing bowls just say, wake up. <laughs> We're about to start. That's it. When they do those singing bowls, it's either wake up or uh, now we're finished or whatever it is. So they're, they're good prompts, I always think. So as Heather said uh, today, this is the second in a series that we're doing on the 10 ox herding pictures. Now, if you missed any of the other ones, uh, if you want to pick up a red thing at the back of the, uh, at the chapel on the table there, you, it shows you how to get the other ones uh, either on a podcast or online or whatever it is. So you can uh, pick those up. Um, so the 10 ox herding pictures are a series of images accompanied by poems used in the Zen tradition to illustrate uh, the stages of spiritual awakening. So they represent the stages of spiritual awakening. Uh, it's a Zen thing, and Zen aims through meditation to enable us to realize our true nature, the true reality. That's the purpose of Zen, to enable us to, to wake up and, and realize our true nature. Um, there are many different uh, depictions of the tent ox herding pictures. Uh, there's the ones that we've got there. Um, I put another set up here, if you want to come and have a look at it, if those of you who weren't here last week, uh, to see an, a different set. And the thing that's on the front of the podium here is another one. That is number five, leading the ox home. So various things, different paintings, also different poetry as well by the paintings. Um, so they, they vary. Uh, representing the ten stages of awakening, stages on a journey to find the essence of things. And they enable us to see our place on that journey. And they show the challenges and the pitfalls of each stage. And, you know, those of us that think that we're already there, it very quickly shows us, you know, there's a long way to go in terms of, of how it all works. And as I said last week, there are sort of 12th century version of spiral dynamics uh, if you want to do that. And last week, uh, we looked at the first picture for searching for the ox. Um, and in that first picture, uh, and you can look at it on, on the book, it just says searching for the ox. Uh, the ox has lost, like most of the world, it says it's been led astray by the cares of the world. Desire to get on and succeed, uh, they're the things that are most important. But something reminds him that there's more to life than this. And that's, he suddenly realizes, if you look, he's holding a whip. And that tells him that he's, he's an ox herd. And we all have our own little whip that tells us that we're on the journey. And normally, for most of us, it's a sort of, sort of yearning for meaning. 
you know, the, the idea that possibly there could be more to life than just looking at figures every, all, every day or suddenly feeling a sense of emptiness or, or whatever it is. There's promptings that act as our whip that says, hang on, is there more to life than this? So that's what wakes, you know, the, the, the episode is woken up by the idea that he's got a whip and we're woken up by our yearnings. And we, like the Oxford, then go on a search for meaning. In the boy's case, it's for the ox, uh, which represents the true nature, you know, God, the ground of all being, whatever you like to call it. He's on that search. And, you know, we're on the same sort of search, really, looking for meaning. And he makes a vow that he will actually find that enlightenment. And that vow keeps him going. Um, but, you know... He's not saved, it says, it, I mentioned this last week, he's not saved by his enlightenment. He's actually saved by the vow that he makes right at the beginning. That's what takes him through. And again, we're not saved by the end part of the journey. We're saved by the decision to look. We're saved by our decision to go on that journey. In searching, the boy makes the vow, but searching for Sartori, for enlightenment, as I said last week, searching for it is like looking for your glasses when they're on the end of your nose. Because it's there. We never, you know, if we had a true nature, I can't remember losing mine. So I don't think I have lost it. So it's actually still there. It's just like perched on the end of your nose and I can't see it. I can't actually get to it. We've forgotten. But our source and the glasses, both of them are at the end of our nose all the time. And, and so today... We're going to look at the second picture. Uh, and the second picture is entitled, Seeing the Traces. And I just read the sort of spritz at the beginning of it. It says, Seeing the Traces. By the aid of the sutras, sutras are like sort of scripture, Zen scripture. We're not studying Zen here. We're using these pictures to actually find our own way. But they're scriptures. By studying the scriptures and by inquiring into doctrines, he has come to understand something. That's the ox said. He's found the traces. He now knows that vessels, however varied, are all of gold. And the objective world is a reflection of the self. Yet he is unable to distinguish what is good from what is not. His mind is still confused as to truth and falsehood. And he has not yet entered the gate. He's provisionally said to have noticed the traces. And there's always a little poem. By the stream and under the trees, scattered are the traces of the lost. The sweet-scented grasses are growing thick. Did he find the way? However remote, over the hills and far away, the beast must wander. His nose reaches the heavens. No one can conceal it. Do you know, what strikes me in the second picture is that, you know, it's, in the description, is it's quite an advanced state. And we're only at number two. And yet, he now knows that vessels, however varied, are all of gold. And the objective world is a reflection of the self. He knows that all reality, just to translate that, he knows that all reality is infused with the ground of all being. That, you know, this lectern, that pillar, Steve, 
Everybody here, everything is infused by the ground of all being. That you and me are all gold and that we see a reflection of our true nature as we look out. Well, I didn't know about you, but, you know, it's, it's taken me years just to get to that point of actually realizing that everything is what, I mean, it says, you know, in the Christian terms, it says, you know, uh, I'm in the Father, you are in me, and I'm in you. I mean, all, all the traditions, this, this understanding is there, that, 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 you know, the kingdom of heaven is within you, that everything is infused by the godness. But, you know, I think that's still quite an advanced stage. I think when I first read it, I thought, gosh, how, how, where are we going to go from here? Um, I like the bit in the Bible, and, and, and this, idea of, this idea of everything being infused with the same nature. You know, there's a wonderful bit in the Bible that actually, just because we're in a chapel, I want to talk about the Bible a bit. Uh, There's one little bit in the Bible that has the same full understanding of that. And it comes in the bit where Jesus has died. And the Bible says, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. Now you might think, how on earth does that relate to what I've just been talking about? The veil of the temple was rent in twain when Jesus died. Now, the veil... The curtain of the temple represented the demarcation between that which was sacred, all the stuff that's in the temple, and that which was profane. It was the veil between that which was sacred, the stuff in the temple, and that which was profane. And profane comes from the Latin word pro, which means before, and farnum, which means temple. That which is profane is before the temple. So everything outside the veil is profane. It is outside the temple. And so that which is sacred is within the temple. So the veil of the temple being rent in twain represents the abolition of the differentiation between that which is sacred and that which is not. It's actually saying, making the point that everything is sacred, as the boy is realizing here. It is a major realization within all traditions that there is a sacredness of all things. The veil of the temple in Rachel Twain represents the abolition of the differentiation that was between that which is sacred and that which is not. And the gospel is making the point that the boy is realizing here. So the ox herd, which is, you know, this is us on our journey, has begun to see the traces of the ox. By the aid of the sutras and by, by inquiring into doctrines, he's come to understand something. By studying sacred writings and established belief, he gets on the path. And once you start searching, and I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this, once you start searching, it's almost like the path reveals itself. Books, you know, when you're really keen, you know, I don't know if you remember that, that first time when you got on the phone, you think, well, yeah, this is, this is, really, and books begin to appear and people begin to appear in your life and things seem almost to fall into place. It's almost as if you are answering a deep call from the universe, that the universe is calling you onto this path and you're answering a deep call that is manifested in noticing the whip, first of all, Noticing the yearning that you have. And once you've noticed that call from the universe, then the universe conspires with your life to bring you what you need to show you the way. There's a sort of conspiring with the universe. But it does involve looking. And as it says here, it does involve studying. 
You can't just think, oh, I'll just smoke a spliff and that will be it. You know, what it means, you've got to study your sutras. You've got to study, read books, go on courses. You know, it does involve really working out what's going on, doing the things that will help you search and notice the traces. You've got to do that. But to notice the traces, you have to first, you have to first admit that you don't know. You've got to admit that you actually don't know what's happening. Because unless you... Oh, hang on. Well, the fact of the matter is you have to unknow all the things you thought you knew because what happens is we're totally full up in our understanding. Most of us have, you know, think that we know everything. And if we don't know everything, we can look at it on the internet. But the fact of the matter is we can't put any more in because it just goes all over the place. And what we have to do is we have to empty ourselves. We have to be willing to not know. That's difficult for a lot of us. Because we even, we even know about enlightenment, religion, we know about everything. And to actually get to that point where we're willing to not know, so actually something new can come in, is an incredibly important part of being able... If you're full up, you'll not notice any traces. But if you admit, even, even now, even those of us that have been on this path a bit, admit that we don't know. And the moment you do that, you start to notice that we have to be willing to be empty to let something new in. We have to not know and just realize we're on a path and be looking. We have to be looking and be willing to know something new. And when we notice something, then we need to recognize you know, interesting, when we notice something, we need to recognize that it is a trace and not the ultimate truth. We need to realize it is a trace and not the ultimate truth. Sometimes we find a little truth and then we make it into an absolute truth. And then we use it as a cave that we sort of spiritually live in. It's our new reality that we've just discovered. And that's enough for us rather than keep going and keep not knowing. And you know, that is how sects form and cults and religions. Because they think, right, this is it. I've got the cave. I'm going to live in this cave. And everybody else, I'm going to invite everybody else to come and live in there with me. But we just noticed, noticed just the realisation that the divine is in everything. You can't just stop there. If you just stop there, you just make a religion. The divine is in everything. Let's just make a religion of that. You have to keep noticing the traces. And, you know, a lot of those sects, you know, and if you do enter the, one of those little caves of a trace, as it'll be the cave, it's a dead end. It doesn't actually lead you anywhere. We might not, you know, we, we can't even picture what we might find because that's to be full up if we start picturing what we might find. There's a great, I don't know if you've read the book The Green Knight by Iris Murdoch, but there's a great line in it where he says, she says, by picturing the end of the road, by picturing the end of the road, you imagine you've reached it. You cherish magic if you do that, which is the opposite of truth. By imagining the end of the road, you know, you've created your own path. You know what it is. It's not truth, it's magic. You're just then going to magic it into place. And we have to have the endurance to keep going, not to rest satisfied in an idea that seems pleasing. 
some truth that is handed down by others, but we've got to keep seeking our own truth and realization. There's a lovely quote from St. Therese of Lisieux, and she says, uh, Faith demands the destruction of what faith has built. Faith demands the destruction of what faith has built. I first began noting the traces in Carnes Restaurant in Westbourne Grove in London. Anyone been to Carnes in Westbourne Grove? It's a great Indian restaurant in Westbourne Grove. I was at a party, and uh, I invited this girl out to dinner at the party. And you know, I told you last week, you know, you know, I was living a bit of a sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle in London. I just knew it wasn't going to be a, you know, it wasn't going to sort of end well, let's say. And so part of me was looking, and I was in this restaurant. And we were eating, you know, we were in a restaurant. She's suddenly liking conversation. She said to me, um, I'm going to India on holiday. Would you like to come? I thought, well, why not? You know, so I said, yes. Little realizing that going to India on holiday was going on a 125-mile circular trek of, you know, the, you know, 15 days in the mountains. A circular trek, you don't go back to your hotel. You camp. And we went up 14,000 feet. And I hated every minute of it. It was, you had to poo outside and you know, dig, your, dig your hole. And, you know, it was walking every day. And, you know, I was, you know, I was just, you know, it was, it was totally the opposite of what I... Anyway, so we went out and we got above the, cloud, you know, above the cloud line. We got above the snow line. And there was one, this one particular day. This is the first trace I saw. It's one particular day. And it was night. And... We were right on you know, the top of this bit of the mountain, up 14,000 feet. And believe it or not, the, the cloud was beneath us. The cloud was beneath us, and the, the, the moon was shining through. And the mountains looked like great ships emerging out of the cloud. And I looked at this, and I just went, wow! It was a huge... Something in me went, god And all my cynicism just left me. At that moment, you know, I just the track just transformed at that moment, and I, I didn't think that that much had happened. But my mother told me later on that when she saw me getting off the plane wearing Indian clothes <laughs> and claiming to be vegetarian, <laughs> she knew something was up. And I, I had suddenly noticed a trace, and I thought, well, you know, what do I do here? So. I decided to go and see my friend Duncan, who I knew was into all this sort of stuff because I'd bought his stereo, very expensive stereo, when he'd, in order for him to be able to go and visit his guru in India. So I took advantage of that and bought it cheap. So I went to him and said to Duncan, you know, what's it all about? This is the next question. He said, well, you are in everything and everything is in you. I thought, well, that's great. Thank you very much. That's a great help. Anyway, he said, look, I tell you what, why don't you read this book? And he gave me this book, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And I read this book and it was really weird stuff, you know, people being buried and then, you know, all the Indian stories of, you know, people coming back to life again and stuff like that. But there was something about it that told me that this guy was telling the truth. I just knew that there was something, there was a huge trace here that I noticed. And so I thought, right, you know, I want this. You know, there was this idea of enlightenment that they're all going for. I want this, and I just felt this trace that I wanted. And so I wrote off to the Self-Realization Fellowship in California, which is where it was by then. He moved over, he came over here. 
And, and they said they send my, my meditation by ship. And, and that wasn't enough. So I sent them extra money. I said, no, send it on a plane. So I got the meditation. I was still going out and having parties and stuff like that. And, and so I tried to do my meditation. I had given up smoking just for the, you know, because that, was, that seemed a good idea. But I just couldn't keep it together you know, in terms of uh, you know, the meditation and something like that. But, but I, I, I was sort of on a path. I'd noticed something that had happened. I couldn't really change my lifestyle that much at that particular moment. But that's I can remember the excitement of noticing those traces. And, you know, we're so conditioned to not the excitement, you know, everything being the same. So I just encourage you to, to I'm going to go back to my script now. So I, I just encourage you to, you know, to, to, to remember that excitement of, of what it was like uh, uh, to notice the traces. And it seemed to me that one trace followed another along the path. I noticed that. And the ox herd has noticed that the objective world is a reflection of the self. And as such, it's revealing paths that are available. And by discernment, we take the path that is not the highway that the world offers, but we, we begin to take a more narrow path. That, that lovely poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveller. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other, just as fair. And having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, there was for the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black, Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling of this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by. And that made all the difference. That's Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Less Travelled. Our discernment, encouraged, our discernment encouraged by the vow that we've taken never to give up until we've, and this is the vow, the, vow that's, the Zen vow is never to give up till you become a Buddha and have brought peace to the world. That, that's, that's the eternal vow. It's really to seek enlightenment and peace of those around you. And that shows the path at every stage. And if we're true to our vow, and if we haven't given up, because we do give up. We think, oh, I'll do me meditation. I'll go to the chapel. You know, I'll make the occasional spliff. You know, those sort of things. I'm, I'm enlightened. I'm spiritual. But there's a giving up in that. And we just resign ourselves to it. But if we haven't given up, if we still have that openness to not knowing, that beginner's mind at all times, that mind of innocence then we can still open ourselves to notice the traces again. It matters not what stage we think we're at. We're always given that choice, those two paths that open up every single stage along the way. And our vow, our commitment to the spiritual life is what enables us to make the choices that take us forward. And if you think that your spiritual life has stalled, or if you feel that you're not making progress, 
then it's down to moment-by-moment -moment commitment. It is down to not knowing. It is down to being open to that. We forget the vow. We think we know, and then we take the path more travel. We take the broad gate, as Jesus called it. Most people go through the broad gate, and he says, go through the narrow gate. We have to be keen as we go through life, keen to see the traces, to have the desire to fulfill the vow at the top of our minds, rather than the desire for comfort and easy life. And that's difficult with so many distractions on the way. It's difficult. As, people, as, as the poem says, he is unable to distinguish what is good from what is not. His mind is still confused as to truth and falsehood. He has not yet entered the gate. He's provisionally said to have noticed the traces. At this point, our mind is still very much in control. And we're trying to work out what's really going on. We think we know what's going on. I, I, I was trying to work out what was good or bad. My lifestyle didn't change. Nothing much happened. My mind was still whirring around, trying to work out what to do. The stage is characterized by confusion. What is true? What am I really committed to? Surely all this stuff is just a different form of wellness work to make me feel happier. And at this stage, it's our commitment that keeps us going. Jesus put it well. He said, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. And he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, and this is the key line, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It is the commitment that we're looking at here. It's about the vow. And without that commitment, this is just, this is just another part of Aspen's entertainment industry. Nice thing to do on a Sunday. You know, and, and this is just what I would call spiritual stand-up. But with the vow, then you notice the traces and begin to take the path. Even it's confusing and your mind tell us, tells you that no good will come of it. But it's the path that will lead you. It's the path that leads you, not your mind. It's the path that leads you, not your mind. It's your heart that will prompt you to go this way rather than that. It was my heart that said, okay, let's go to India. My mind, you know, <laughs> I prefer to stay. It was my heart that wanted it. Sense the path and notice the traces rather than just dogging along, as we say in England, hoping that it will turn out okay in the end. The traces are hidden. But once you have a nose for finding them, once you're open to not knowing and have the commitment of the vow in your heart and it's engaged, your nose reaches for the heavens and nothing can conceal it. The Oxford's hose, a nose reached for the heavens and nothing was able to conceal it. Once you're on that path, it just reveals itself. We lament our progress. We lament the progress of the world, but in committing to the path, I'm nearly finished. In case they were mind, your, 
in committing to your path, all is opened up. You don't have to find the path for others. That's for them to find. But your only job is to notice the traces on your path, and then you'll see what it is that you have to do. And we worry about the world, don't we? The way that everything is going to hell in a handcart. But really, that's not our concern. Our concern is to notice the traces on our path, to have our heart engaged, our vow to the forefront, because that's really all we can do. We can live our lives to the best. You know, like on an aeroplane, it says, if there's a problem and the oxygen masks come down, grab the mask first before helping others. You can't help others when you're gasping for breath. That's why you do that. And so it is in life. We have to have our life. We have to get the oxygen for ourselves. We have to get our spiritual life on the path before we can help others. We put it ourselves in a position to hear the call of the universe is making to it and we respond to it. Because if we don't notice the traces, we're lost. No matter how successful we are or how successful the world thinks we are, we're just traveling with the herd on the way to nowhere. So we're just going to take a, um, let's just have a minute of, of complete quiet just to let that all land. I just sometimes feel like all these amazing words just need to have space just to notice what resonated in you. Sometimes listening to a talk like that, obviously like our mind is engaged with those words. But how did it land in your heart and your body? Did you notice, like, do you feel, is your heart quickened at all? And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's a trace this morning. Just to, to notice that trace or to notice how you've received anything. Just linger there a second and be grateful and just take note. And just a few more questions maybe that, that came to my mind, other little things that I gleaned that might be helpful. Do you feel like you're on a path? Like what is your path? Have you noticed the whip this last week? Those of you who were here last week, have you noticed the whip? What are you yearning for, if anything? What are you longing for? What promptings have you noticed? What are you searching for? Are you searching and are the glasses on your face? 
Do you have a vow? Do you love that vow? Do you want that vow? Do you want to recommit to it? How important is it? And I love that at the end of the day, there's something about what Nicholas was saying, the path finds us. Like, we put ourselves out there, the desire's there, but the path finds us and we can trust the path. The path will lead us. Just to keep willing nothing and knowing nothing and wanting nothing, having that kind of stance of, open receptivity as we go through our days, receptive and ready to see, to notice, being willing to unlearn, to relearn, to reconfigure our lives. And just knowing that all we can do is be responsible for our lives, for our choices. So we ask as individuals and collectively as a community that we might be more committed, more full of love, more receptive and willing, and that we might just give our lives more deeply in service to each other and to the world. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.